Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Jonna Emil, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Mary Nan Mallory, Vice Dean for Clinical Affairs and Professor of Emergency Medicine at University of Louisville School of Medicine. She's also the president of the American Board of Emergency Medicine, and much of our conversations today will focus on that aspect of her professional life. Thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Mary Nan. Thank you, Jonna. It's an honor, a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you. I appreciate it. First, can we just start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and what led to your interest in emergency medicine? Sure. I've often described my interest in emergency medicine as accidental tourism. <laughs> so, you know, I've been doing this for about 30 years now. Our specialty is about 40 some years old. You know, so we're a relatively young specialty. We're the second youngest specialty in the house of medicine. Yeah. And uh, when I was in medical school, I really didn't understand much about emergency medicine. We saw students and interns and residents going down to ERs and making decisions about patients. Sometimes the least trained folks, fortunately, who were in the emergency department making decisions about patients. So that was kind of the exposure that I'd had. And it wasn't until I was assigned to work in an emergency department in the Army because I had an, an HPSP Army scholarship. Oh, wow. And the Army had board certified emergency physicians supervising those of us who were interns working in the emergency department. So that was the first time I realized, wow, this is actually a job. You can make a living doing this. There's formal training and you're also, you know, you can get certified, board certified in this specialty. So it's truly a specialty. But, you know, I was a bit perplexed the first time I saw someone's business card that said emergency medicine specialist. It's kind of like, (laughs) what is that? Because at that point, the emergency department was where any doctor could work. You know, and, and honestly, at that time, there weren't a lot of emergency treatments. And so maybe that was okay then. But as the science around emergency medicine has progressed, we know that we actually need specialists, you know, who understand the first hour or two of care. Because we have a lot of time-sensitive treatments now available, like for heart attack and stroke, et cetera. So anyhow, I had quite a bit of experience on active duty with terrific board-certified supervisors, and that inspired me after I was paying back the time I owed the Army to pursue an emergency medicine residency. And I matched with the program here at University of Louisville, which is a very historic, older program in our field, and I never left. Wow. (laughs) You know, yeah, so I went through the residency and then joined the faculty, was invited to join the faculty, and have been here since. So essentially, I've been here since 1992. Wow. That's awesome. Amazing. I'm curious to learn a little bit about how you became involved with ABEM. Sure. Well, that's pretty easy to answer. My mentor and chair, Dr. Dan Danzel, was very deeply involved with board certification, the idea of board certification and the American Board of Emergency Medicine very early on in his career. And so when I came to residency here and I started to understand that there was a formal way to support certification, I just jumped on board. So my first foray as a volunteer with the American Board of Emergency Medicine was as an oral examiner. In emergency medicine, to become board certified, our candidates, our physicians, at this point, they're physicians, they've completed a residency, 
they have to take a qualifying written exam and then a certifying oral exam. Oh, wow. And so the oral exam is sort of like what we're doing right now, but it's more structured. And the physicians work through a case with an examiner who's had training to formally ask questions and then score their answers and their management. So it it becomes all about a standard. We're setting the standard. The American Board of Emergency Medicine's mission is to ensure the highest standard in emergency medicine. And we leverage the experience and a knowledge of our own board-certified emergency physicians who work all across the country in different community practices, academic practices, military practices, urgent cares. We leverage their experience and knowledge to, we'll say, set the standard Mm -hmm. for our exams. And that's how we perpetuate the idea of what the standard is. So, you know, the standard is not coming from an ivory tower group of doctors. It's coming actually from the sort of egalitarian, broad-based group of emergency medicine volunteers that serve the board. Fantastic. So I have experience working in the ED as well. I worked in the pediatric emergency room and trauma for a couple of years as a registered nurse there. And guilty as I'm reading this, I thought, I don't know if any of the physicians I worked with were ABM certified. I just don't know. And it's not something that was really something that we spoke a lot about or even just had a lot of knowledge about. In learning about this, I'm curious, you know, as far as patients are concerned, why is it important for patients who come into the emergency department to be cared for? by physicians that are even certified? You know, I think as a physician and as a board certified physician and as a leader of an organization that supports certification and standards, it's my hope that a patient doesn't have to worry about that, (laughs) right? Because we don't wear badges on our heads that say that we've had X amount of training and X amount of examinations, et cetera. We've been through multiple assessments and we pass them. Because when you're a patient and you're in distress, potentially the worst day of your life, (laughs) you know, when you have an emergency or when you're critically ill, that's certainly the last thing that any of us in healthcare wants patient to have to be worrying about. That is your qualifications. Right. That's a big reason why I've spent a lot of time in my career volunteering for an organization that supports certification because we want patients and their family members to be assured that they are going to see a physician, an emergency physician, who can stabilize them and make appropriate consultations, get them admitted, or help them with outpatient access. We want that to be seamless, and we want you to be assured. I mean, my family has been patients, right? I've been a patient, and and so you're not going to go in on a bad day when you're in pain or you can't breathe and say, hey, what credentials do you have? This is important because patients, you know, they don't choose their emergency physicians. They, they sometimes choose their emergency departments. Sometimes, sometimes EMS makes that decision. Or if you're a child, you're taken to a children's hospital if there's one available, right? right? But, you know, we do kind of have a choice in what cardiologist we see, what primary care doctor we see, and we can change, you know, if we don't really like it, usually. Not all of us, because some health insurers, you know, require you to go to certain positions. But typically, even in those situations, you can change. Like, you know, you can request to change. But when you have an emergency, you don't have that choice. Yeah. So 
there's one standard and and we we really understand that every emergency department is not staffed at this point by a physician who meets that standard and the physicians who are in those situations i'm sure most of them do continuing certification and they try to get the education as best they can and we're proud that they are there in those emergency departments but having said that we really are working towards a standard for every emergency physician in every ED that's our goal yeah that's important I want to dive in a little bit to, you know, your experience in the emergency department. And that is a specialty. I absolutely agree. And I'm curious, what have you recognized as the things that have changed since you started to where we are now in emergency medicine? You know, one thing specifically that I think about is how the emergency department is used in the community. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that changes often just in small chunks of time. So I would love to hear your perspective of, you know, what's different about how emergency medicine is utilized today that maybe wasn't like that when you first started. So in the urban areas, I think emergency departments, especially in county hospitals, were the safety net hospitals for those who were disenfranchised or too poor to have insurance. Those individuals in the community who had means had private physicians and Honestly, there weren't a lot of treatments for emergencies. So if you think about it, if someone had a stroke, there wasn't really a treatment. I mean, I was well into my career before I saw patients in emergency departments who had stroke symptoms because most people kind of knew they were having a stroke and they just stayed at home because there wasn't anything to do about it. So, you know, heart attack patients, we didn't have therapies since I've been in medicine. So once we developed therapies, then we encourage patients who had those symptoms, you know, to get to the emergency department, right? right? So typically people come to the emergency department if they can't breathe, they're in pain or something bleeding, you know, I mean, in general. And so what I have noticed over the years since we've moved generally in most communities away from county hospitals, and most of those hospitals have been, we'll say, upgraded and integrated into larger health systems, there is improved access for all patients, whether you're on the, we'll say, disenfranchised side of the railroad tracks or not. So we really elevated the care for all patients in our country. Having said that, we still are the safety net place for those who have difficulty accessing care. And there are many communities across our country, both in rural areas as well as in urban areas, where patients have access problems you know, have trouble accessing a physician. They don't understand how to call someone. And honestly, since we've moved into an era of preventative medicine, the primary care physician spends an incredible amount of time on preventative care, not very much time on acute episodic care. So that responsibility now has moved, you know, to the emergency department as well. So what we've seen is more, you know, kind of a snowballing effect, not just the disenfranchised seeking medical care, but all patients seeking emergency care. Yeah, that's fantastic. So we got to get into COVID. Okay. Because COVID has gotten into us. I want COVID to get out of us. (laughs) (laughs) No kidding. As frontline, we hear frontline, frontline, frontline. Of course, I immediately think of all my nursing peers. I think of all my physician teammates. I think of everybody who right now is caring for patients and, you know, is feeling it in a way that we haven't felt in a really long time. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about, you know, emergency medicine specialists. So physicians like yourself that are working in the ED during this time in the COVID crisis. And one thing that, 
you know, when I think about burnout and I think about front lines, I think about that. What are your concerns there? Are you concerned that we're going to be seeing like big levels of burnout and physicians in the emergency department? And what does that look like when we're on the other end of this? Well, we're definitely seeing it, you know, I'm hearing about it from colleagues in some communities. This week, I talked to a group of emergency physicians from New York Presbyterian, you know, over in Brooklyn. And we, at that point, were reminiscing, we'll say, about some of the challenges that they faced earlier on in the pandemic and how disappointed they were that other communities didn't learn from their experience. So what I was able to see is is they are recovering. Yeah. So, you know, I'm optimistic that we will recover, but there are battle scars and there are some, unfortunately, some fatalities here. Yeah. I mean, you know, we've had some high profile emergency physician suicide acknowledged in our country. Emergency medicine itself with the various shift work and the stressors, you know, of meeting and, and greeting and caring for people on the worst day of their life, you know, pretty much every shift. It's a stressful profession to begin with. And we train each other on techniques and strategies to maintain our health. But, you know, this has been a tipping point. You know, this pandemic has presented a tipping point for emergency physicians as it has for nurses as well. And our family members, we were fearful, I think, more in the beginning because we didn't understand the ramifications of the disease for our own families. And so many physicians separated from their families while they were caring for a lot of COVID patients. But as time has gone on, I think we have a better understanding. You know, I think we're like gaining control, right? We've got, we're back like taking a breath. We generally have PPE. We are understanding how to better treat patients with COVID. And we are getting more treatments and the vaccine is upon us. So I think we're moving back into some equilibrium, catching our breath. And the next six to nine months, we are a resilient crowd. That's for sure. We're a resilient crowd, Jonna. And so we wouldn't be in this specialty if we weren't resilient. This time next year, not that there won't be some casualties, I think we'll be in a much better position professionally. Before we get off that topic, though, I I should mention that all of our professional societies, as well as many of our health systems, have reached out to their members, their physicians, their nurses with counselors, mental health, 24-hour calls. Sometimes it's just something as simple, though, as peer-to-peer debrief. We take each other aside with our masks on, six or 12 feet apart, and we just we might cry or we might talk about what just happened, how unfair it was. Because sometimes we're the ones standing by when no family can be here, Absolutely. You know, particularly our nurses, right? Because they're care and comfort folks. I've often been told that I'm a great physician, but I'm a terrible nurse because <laughs> sometimes in the clinical environment, I, I probably don't get the best check marks for compassion because, you know, I'm trying to get things done. And, and so we have to acknowledge as a team in the emergency department, we all have a role to play and we've got to support each other in those roles in times like this. I agree. I agree. I think that's perfectly said. And one of the things that I feel like was really revealed as a result of what we're dealing with now in the pandemic, you know, it gives us an opportunity to kind of step back and think about what are the things we need to do better when we do get on the other side of this. And that burnout and the fatigue and the mental wellness is something that I feel like we've always kind of talked about. We've had that when we talk about healthcare and frontline workers, 
it's become something in, in my eyes and in my opinion now that I feel like people are really paying attention to. And now we're taking that quite seriously. What are some things for you, you know, that you might feel like now during this time, we've seen these revelations in our healthcare systems, perhaps gaps in our healthcare and how we deliver that. And what are the things that you feel like we can do better to strengthen it? So when we do come out on the other end of this, we've learned, you know, right? We've taken the lessons and we've learned. How do we do that? What's that look like? Well, you know, something we haven't really talked about a lot yet, the healthcare disparities that this pandemic has shown, you know, a bright light upon. And as I mentioned, in emergency medicine, we, we kind of have been managing through that one patient at a time for many years. But as our specialty has matured, we find emergency physicians more actively involved in public health. In my small region here, there are two emergency physicians who are leading the public health initiatives in their counties. You know, just for an example, we have an emergency physician in our community who's the CMO and vice president of a health system. So as, you know, and I'm vice dean for clinical affairs and I work with our practice plan and our health system, as well as I work with all the health systems in our community. And we really get that. We know it in our heart. We know it in our minds. We see it. How do we then, you know, the challenge is when we don't have patients coming in our doors as quickly with this disease, then it's going to be shame on all of us if we haven't made some action around reaching down and around and over and through and solving some of these problems, putting some real resources and real systems change around these problems. So that's one area. Another area, as you mentioned, is is healthcare provider mental health and also community mental health. And so I think we're going to see more structured ways in the medical community that we care for each other in terms of mental health. And, you know, stress is an easy word to say. I mean, I think everyone I know has anxiety, you know, it's like, but there are some serious mental health problems, depression, suicidality, you know, completed suicide. And I think we're going to see ourselves as physicians and healthcare providers addressing that more openly and more deliberately, you know, to go forward. The other thing that I think is really cool is that one of the reasons I loved emergency medicine is it's a team sport. And when I was starting in emergency medicine, it was clearly a team sport. And there was a lot of support between nursing staff and techs and high-fiving and encouragement and education up and down that chain, so to speak. You know, if you think of it as a hierarchical chain where the physician is the leader, probably the last 10 years, we've kind of moved away from that once we got electronic health records. Everybody in the ED is trying to do their get, like they got to get their notes in and they've got to like type and everyone's looking at a screen and we didn't go into medicine. No, none of us went into medicine to look at screens (laughs) on computers. And this pandemic, I think, has brought the professions together in a way that I haven't seen since the advent of electronic health records. I don't want to like bash electronic health records. It used to take me hours to get an old EKG, you know, so I could <laughs> chest pain situation. So it changed our, our flow and it changed our interpersonal interactions. And I think we've gotten better again at communicating with each other as providers, leveraging that, those digital innovations, and also better at communicating and caring, caring for patients. Yeah. So those are, those are my top three. You know, we can talk next year and see if, um, (laughs) 
if we're on our way. <laughs> right. If we're on track or not. That's Those right. are some great points. Those are really great points. I think the caring has definitely become more deliberate and less of like a word that we say and we kind of think about it and it feels good. And yeah, those EMRs, I mean, they're necessary. I get it. But Mm -hmm. yes, you know, when it's 7 p.m. and you're scrambling to chart everything, Mm -hmm. you know, conversation with real people, connecting with real people, just having that dialogue is out the window. And I think that you're right. I mean, that that changes the dynamic and it changes the way that we even present ourselves to patients and communicate with them. That's a fantastic point. So in our audience, we have a lot of students and early healthcare professionals that listen in to these podcasts. What would be your advice to them about meeting the challenges of this moment and, you know, approaching their career in healthcare? Wow. Well, the first thing that occurs to me is this is your time, especially if you're early in your career. It's all a bit much, perhaps, but this is your time. You know, every time we've had physical wars, the Army Medical Department, for example, or the civilian medical community have made great advances that have then scaled or modified for other areas in medicine to advance the care of our patients. So in some ways, I think students, learners right now feel disenfranchised because at the beginning of the pandemic, for their own safety and to preserve PPE, they were removed from the clinical environment, right? So that's been a challenge. Some of our institutions, we used video technology in order to try to keep students connected. So leveraging, you know, leveraging technology in order to teach and learn in a new way kind of came out of the pandemic, at least in some of our academic centers. But if I was a student, I think our own students, what I hear from our own students, they're concerned about the social challenges, you know, the social unrest, the social issues the diversity and inequity challenges that they see in society. It's their coming of age, right? They're feeling that stress of coming of age at the same time they're learning medicine. So I think a piece of advice is while you can't be untrue to yourself and your beliefs, you've got to focus on the medicine. You spent so much time getting here into this learning environment and you got to, hopefully, you're committed still to complete the task and become the very best student and physician that you can be. We need that, you know, because there's a lot of folks that can protest and, and politic, but you're very unique and gifted in the areas of science and study and clinical reasoning. And so please focus, you know, please focus. And one of the ways that you can stay connected or improve your connectivity with your physician peers, mentors, leaders, almost every professional society in medicine, I know in emergency medicine, has sort of remote mentorship available for students. So sometimes that means you're just exploring the specialty. Sometimes that means you're a resident and you have an off-site mentor. You know, your program leadership doesn't even need to know you have this mentor. So again, in the digital age, there are so many more opportunities to reach out digitally to not only learn clinical medicine at your institution, but to obtain mentorship. And most all of us in academics, you know, we love to talk, we love to teach, we love to hear ourselves talk, blah, blah, blah. Also, to the degree that you can shadow, get into some shadowing experiences. I think most health systems are now allowing students to reintegrate and re-enter 
And you may need to take a little extra time, you know, on your own to shadow in an emergency department or shadow in an operating room away from your actual clinical or basic science education. So I do think there's going to be a little makeup time that students are going to need to take responsibility for and lean in in that regard. It is what it is. You know, you didn't wind up overseas. My dean, Tony Ganzel, she's an amazing woman. She became dean through the student affairs track, you know, at the medical school. So she really understands students and their challenges. You know, when she faces challenges, she walks into the lobby in front of her office and she stands in front of one of our previous dean's portraits. And down on the bottom, underneath that portrait, there's a a short inscription that says that he was the dean of the medical school when 100% of his students were in uniform and deployed overseas. It's like, what did that mean for them, right, in World War II when they were all gone? They weren't even here. They were deployed overseas to act as physicians in training. We haven't required or asked that of our medical students, right? Your home, in, in some cases, in difficult situations, we, we certainly understand that. But you have this opportunity to continue to be learning. And we want you to keep leaning in because it's so important. I mean, you know, your education is critically important to you and the patients you're going to serve, which may be me, right? I mean, <laughs> right. you know, or my family <laughs> or your own family, et cetera, et cetera. So I want you to remain optimistic. You're going to get, we're all going to get through this. That's awesome. That's fantastic advice and very motivational, inspiring. It's easy to feel like, I don't know if this is the right time, but you're right. The time is now. Right. The time is now. Lean into your education. And it's as if you were, you know, serving in World War II. You're just, you're at home, whatever that means. It's, I know it's not optimal, but it's not, you know, you're not in a field hospital in the middle of Europe. You know, I'm not trying to balance that and say, oh, we have it so much better. I'm just trying to say, lean in and do what you control, what you can control and, you know, keep learning and keep communicating, keep reaching out because we're here. The educators are here. We're still here and we're still committed to you. A hundred percent. That's fantastic. Dr. Mary Nan Mallory, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been my pleasure. I appreciate it. You've really shared some gems with us. And I'm Jonna Emil. Thanks for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.